0: My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on,
1: but you still live. You know, the, the is still here. Oh, they tell me of a home where those
2: Hello and welcome, you are listening to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast, where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history one story at a time. I'm your host, Cami Ahrens, and welcome back. We are continuing with our Civic Imagination Incubator mini-series. I'm excited to bring to you today Ryan Dearbone. If you haven't tuned in already, make sure to catch our last two episodes. The first one is a really great conversation with uh, Dr. Sangeeta Shrestova, Dr. Henry Jenkins, and Sam Ford, who are all the leads on the Civic Imagination Incubator. And they talk about what the Civic Imagination Project is, how they got there, and the change that they hope to impact in communities in Appalachia and across the world. In our last episode, we highlighted a conversation with Clint Waters, Clint is based in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and they are a sci fi author. So, we had a really great conversation about writing, the creative process, and a really cool project that they're working on called The Commonwealth, which imagines a futuristic, post apocalyptic, but utopic Kentucky, um, very much rooted in traditional Appalachian values and crafts. And I can't recommend it enough. So, if you haven't listened to those, jump over to our website at foxfire.org. Or download them wherever you get your podcasts. As I mentioned, this week we're going to be listening to a conversation I had with Ryan Dearbone. Ryan currently serves as an assistant professor of broadcasting at Western Kentucky University. Um, Prior to that, he worked in a lot of different fields throughout his careers, but spent a lot of time as a multimedia journalist. And so we talk about his journey to becoming a journalist what influenced him as a kid, and his experiences in Kentucky and Tennessee. He's also worked for a community nonprofit. So he's the assistant director of community education. Um, And then he went into the department of philanthropy at Western Kentucky before becoming a assistant professor, which he absolutely loves now. He still works as a freelance journalist and has his own videography company. But he also is really engaged in his community, and he talks a little bit about his work um, in DEI practices and serving in the local chapter of the NAACP and getting a chapter established on Western Kentucky's campus. We finish off the conversation with him talking about his project for the Civic Imagination Incubator, which is a really interesting look at how churches in um, and around his community are coping with post-pandemic numbers. So how are churches engaging people in a shared community when half the congregation or more is still attending virtually? How has that changed technology? How has that changed relationships? Um, So that's a really interesting conversation that we get to at the end of this podcast. So make sure to hang in there so you can listen to that. If you want to find out more about the Civic Imagination Project, or you want to learn more about any of the folks featured on this podcast, just head over again to our website, that's www.foxfire.org. You can scroll through the top header bar to learn and go down to podcast. Or if you go down to the bottom of the front page, you'll see um, little excerpts from recent podcasts and you can check it out there. We'll have links and images and more information over there for you. So without further ado, I'm going to leave it to our conversation with Ryan.
1: So I am Ryan Dearbone, and I am an assistant professor of broadcasting at Western Kentucky University, and I live here in Bowling Green, Kentucky. So I grew up in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, which is in Christian County, which is, uh, if you're in Bowling Green, it's about an hour west, uh, southwest of Bowling Green, Kentucky. So I grew up an only child, Um, me and my mom uh, lived, lived right across the street from my grandmother, um, but I grew up in a, I mean, it's a small community. I, I last time I checked, Hopkins was probably about, oh, about fifteenth, sixteenth biggest town in Kentucky. So it's not huge. Uh, but it's. Is not uh, minuscule either. So I grew up just always having a fascination with TV and 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 news, and just kind of always wanted to be on TV. And as I got older, I I learned a little more about what it would take to be on it. I was like, oh, I would love to be on the. Well, I loved watching Sports Center and ESPN. So my 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 um childhood dream was to be either on ESPN. Or to be on NBC News because my mom watched The Today Show, so I figured, yeah, I'll be on The Today Show or or some NBC News show, or I'll be on ESPN. So um, as I got older, uh, my school never really had any broadcasting like uh, clubs or anything like that, but I always knew I wanted to do it. So um, my mom had went to Western Kentucky, uh, so I was it was on my list of schools to possibly go to. I had initially said no because I didn't want to go to the same college that my mom went to uh, I had that same uh, thought process about high school uh, there were two high schools in Hopkinsville so I decided to go to the one that my mom didn't go to because I wanted to be different but um, when it came to WKU they had when we toured I learned so much about the fact they had like one of the top tier broadcasting departments in the country and I was like well that's what I want to do traveled to the campus and loved every second of it. So I was like, yeah, this is where I'm going to go. I dove into the student newscast. So I did um, anchoring, reporting, sports, behind the scenes work. I worked at the student radio station where I was a, um, I was the uh, recruitment director. Um, I did uh, on-air radio shifts as a DJ uh, and just try to find ways to to be as engaged as possible so that way, once I graduated, I'd have a job and uh, Hopkinsville has a small TV, well had, it's it's defunct now, but had a small TV station um, that I grew up watching. So I made sure the the summer that I had to do my internship, that I did an internship at that station because I needed, because I was broke. I didn't have any money to like go travel somewhere for an unpaid internship. So So my plan was Work there and do the internship during the day, and then work at the YMCA in the morning and the aft in the evening as a as an assistant to the camp counselors there. So that's what I did. And first job out of out of college was at that station from back home because they had I had done some stories for them while I was an intern, and they had a spot open like maybe two months before I graduated, and I just reached out said, "Hey, do you think I might have a job? You know, you might have a job for me. Well, uh, you know, somewhere down the line, they were like." Well, somebody just uh just uh left to go to another station. So once you graduate, if you want it, it's yours. And I was like, okay, we'll we'll do that. We'll go with that.
0: So what was it like finally being a part of that community, finally realizing that dream that you'd had as a kid?
1: It's surreal. Um, because you know, you have this dream, you're like, Oh, I'd love to do it, but you don't always think that it's gonna happen. And I mean, for me, because I you know a little little poor little black kid from Hopkinsville Kentucky that you know grew up in a single parent house um I guess you know in my head yeah okay yeah I I, I knew I was going to do it but sometimes the knowing it and the actual realization of it are two totally different things and even like today the fact that I'm a broadcasting professor I still had to think about that. I am a professor at a college. Somebody actually let me be a professor and it's about broadcasting. You know, I've never thought of myself as the best broadcaster, but I was like, I, I was, I was decent. I won a couple of awards. I, I'm I'm, serviceable, but to be in spots like that, to be able to have met the people that I've met, I've, I've gotten to cover when I I moved to Lexington at one point and worked there, I got to um, cover the, um, the opening or the the movie premiere of Secretariat, and got to meet Calvin Burrell. Um, um, and now I'm forgetting the name of the actress who uh, starred in the movie. Um, but got to meet those people on the red carpet. Got to cover several things. Uh, the the World Equestrian Games because they were in Lexington at one point. So being able to cover these different things, I never thought I'd be able to cover and meet people and just kind of do all those things. Those were the things that was like. Even to this day, I'm like, I can't believe I did that.
0: That's awesome. Um, what kind of influence did your mom and maybe your grandmother have on you growing up and pursuing this career? I mean, I know you mentioned the Western Carolina or Western Kentucky thing, but were there, you know, other influences that you felt from them and helping you get to this point?
1: oh uh, well, my mom was, I mean, she was like she was my best friend. So I mean, she never she never had like, she never. She was an introvert, so she so she was different than me. She was more artistic, but she was an introvert, whereas I was the extrovert. But just her, her always telling me to go for it. For she never, it, never once said, "You're not gonna do this. You can't do this. Think about something more practical." Never once did she ever discourage my my dream and my goal, and and sometimes she just be like, "I I'm proud of you." Well, obviously she was proud of me, but she was like. I mean, I don't know how you found your way into this, but I am so proud of you because, you know, it wasn't that I knew anything specific, but I just always wanted you to do well and have, and, you know, do what fulfilled you. And she was always so supportive. And that was that was amazing to me. And I never had to worry about, well, I, I shouldn't try this because what if my mom doesn't like it or what if my mom is is gets mad at me for going this direction she was always so supportive and my grandmom she's she's always been supportive too. she's always made sure to to put me out in front of people so that way because she knew I was extroverted so she always with at, at, at church I was always um out in front of the 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 crowd you know you know talking or doing something because she knew that was what I like to do. And she wanted to give help give me a platform to do it. So I think those were the the, the ways that they most uh, influenced me and kind of gave me that that step forward.
0: What drew you to teaching? Was it some did somebody like invite you for the position? Or did you decide independently to make that career shift?
1: I've always wanted to teach, and I I think that was the other thing I always wanted wanted to teach in some way, because I I think, because I like to hear myself, well, let me say, I don't like to hear myself talk, but I like to talk. I like to talk. So um, I was an adjunct for eight years through um, graduating with my master's starting to work at a nonprofit as their assistant director, and then coming back to Western as a philanthropy officer. So I was still adjuncting during all of those those uh, transitions. And it just so happened that I was on a search committee for this professor job that I have now. We had some really good candidates, but all of them dropped out for various reasons. And so I joked with my uh, my uh, current uh, boss and my coordinator, and I was like, you know, hey, I- I'll teach the classes for you until you find somebody, and then they were like, "No, seriously, why don't you?" And I was like, "No, my resume doesn't. I'm I'm not a PhD, and I don't have all these these um published published pieces next to my name. I've got a master's, and I've got some years in the business. And they were like, "No, but look at your resume. It it stands up." So um, applied for it. I was like, "Well, because I was I think I was ready to leave philanthropy anyway. I I think I was ready to kind of do something." Something different. I always knew philanthropy wasn't my uh, final stop. I just didn't know what that final stop was going to be. So when this came open and and I applied for it and they said we want you, I was like, yeah, I would be a fool to not move into the to the faculty side of life. And I have, oh man, I've loved it ever since. But I feel as a teacher. I'm I'm better in the fact that I can I've been through those those emotions I've been through those wars and I've seen this stuff I can help direct the next generation here's how you how here's how you navigate some of those things here's how you navigate even if you're not talking about the specific specific news stories, but you know how you deal with uh, newsroom politics how do you deal with the community when they don't like a story you did or they don't like uh, the angle you took on it when somebody is criticizing you I've seen all that stuff so I feel like I can I can share that with them and say here's how you navigated here's how you don't get burnt out on the business or here's when you know it's time to go because I'm I'm honest with students I mean I was in for eight years um, sometimes I think I was in three to five years too long I'm glad I was in for eight years, but sometimes I say, well, maybe I maybe my shelf life was shorter, but I stayed in uh, partially because I didn't know that I had any other transferable skills that I could do anything else with. So I was like, well, let me stick this out until I realized, okay, I, I, I've just got to go for my own um, sanity and my own happiness. So I, I I tell students, hey, look, stay in it until you don't want to be in it. When you don't want to be in it, that's when you need to leave. Don't stick it out for anybody else. Don't feel like you've got to be uh, you've got to be uh, beholden to this thought of where if you don't do it for 30 years or 40 years, you're you're not a lifer. Then you somehow failed. That's that's not the case. You do it for as long as you're effective and as long as you want to. When that stops when it stops being a fun job or a challenging job or a job that you feel that you're gaining something from you might as well just leave. So I mean, I, I I try to try to give my students real world perspective from somebody who's done it rather than somebody who's just read a textbook about it and have has done theory on it. Practicality, that's that's the greatest teacher. By actually actually practicing it and being part of it, that is the teacher that 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 will um that will get you where you want to go.
0: Now, I guess I'd like to switch over. You mentioned that you're really involved in DEI practices, and I would just welcome anything you'd like to share about that and um, how you first got involved in that.
1: Okay. So, um, yeah, I've been involved in uh, a DEI for, for several years now, I guess before DEI as the term, DEI has been like a big thing. Um, I've been a member of the NAACP since uh, about maybe 2006. Well, I'm I'm currently the president of the Bowling Green Warren County branch of the NAACP, uh, and I have been for I'm starting my fifth year uh, as president. But I've always, ever since I was young, I've always had a a love for understanding of diversity, uh, namely because growing up a lot of times a lot of the classes I were in was a lot of the classes I was in um I was the only black man in the class or black kid black boy there might be a couple black girls but most most of the time I was the only black boy namely because uh some of the classes I was in were like maybe um gifted classes or stuff like that where even though there should have been more that looked like me I was one of the few in there so, I was always curious about that. Was there an equitable uh, distribution of, you know, why are there not more that look like me in these classes? Um, When I was little, my mom would always, uh, we'd always have like our own school. Uh, So after I'd get home, she would have these these books about uh, uh, black uh, inventors or black um, kings and queens, black athletes. So that way she would always educate me about, uh, about, black people that most kids I went to school with didn't even know existed because she always wanted me to have a sense of who I was and who I came from and who are the the people that I would look up to so like uh Charles I uh, was a Charles Drew who created the blood bank I knew who he was when I was seven years old I I would venture there's there's people today black white and every other color who's never heard of him but that's an important thing um the, the stoplight was started by was created by a black man. Uh, the um refrigeration system in a in a semi truck created by a black man. Stuff like that 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 I always grew grew up knowing knowing and thinking. Hey, everyone else should know this too. Everyone else should be should should know about everybody else's culture and and the contributions that people have made. So as I've gotten older, I've just been put in spaces where I've been able to learn more about about diversity and equity and inclusion and as i've gotten into those spaces i've learned the importance of it and the in a lot of cases the lack of of dei so um in the past six or seven years as i've kind of gotten more roles uh within the community kind of been a little more active in different spaces um I've I've taken more stock in it, and I've been uh, more vocal about DEI. I've actually started working with a, a company right now. Um, they do um, training on uh, different topics, different circumstances, and situations. So I I am now their DEI educator. So I'll put together a little uh, ten minute or less videos where we talk. DEI we talk about all these uh topics that are not comfortable but they're necessary so um it's it's always it's always rewarding to do that because I'm by no means an expert but what I am is somebody who who wants to do his best to make sure that everyone understands why diversity matters and why diversity is so important that everything can't be homogenous. If it's homogenous, then things can't grow. Things can't change. Things can't, can't become better. But if we look at what DEI is and how it can diversify what we have and make things better, that's, that's my, that's my hope. That's my end game.
0: Has it been an especially challenging navigating that type of agenda in an Appalachian region?
1: It, it is very much so because there's a lot of, of, there's a lot of people who don't think DEI matters. They don't think DEI is necessary. They think things are the way they are and that's the way they should be. Old school money, old school um, thought processes. So being being a young black man uh, or youngish black man out there trying to uh, trying to change hearts and minds is n- is not easy because you know that not everybody who's who's shaking your hand and saying good job actually means that they're probably like I wish he would shut up with that stuff I wish he would leave that stuff alone so there's a there's an understanding that when you do this it's not always going to be perceived the way you want it to be and that you will make some uh, some enemies or you will your agenda will try to be snuffed out by others, but I mean, I owe it to I owe it to myself. I owe it to others who don't have a voice or can't use their voice. And a lot of times like I tell people, I owe it to my two daughters uh, who are who are babies right now. Well, at five and two, I need to leave this place better than I found it for them so they don't have to experience some of the the race racism, the the uh, discrimination that I've had to face. If I can take off at least a little bit of that off of their backs, then I've done my job.
0: What are some small things that you've seen be successful in your region that may be applicable
2: elsewhere?
1: I think when we have conversations, those have tended to be the most effective things when people are willing willing to sit down and have a conversation and walk away from it, not saying, oh, you know, they tried to change my mind but rather walking away saying, okay, I still feel the way I feel, but at least I understand why the person I talk to feels the way they feel. I think if if people were really to sit down and just say, hey, look, I'm not coming in with a preconceived notion about what DEI is or what um, racial harmony is, you get a lot more out of it. Maybe they won't you know, say, oh, I love somebody who looks different than me uh, or somebody who thinks or acts differently than me but maybe they'll say, you know what, rather than just yelling at them, calling them a name, just, just doing stupid things. I'll be nicer to them Uh, real quick. uh, You know, I was in Chicago with my cousin this past summer, we were riding around in a car and for no good reason, this guy just yells out the window, the N word, nobody's doing anything. Nobody's bothering me, but he just yells out the N word. Like it's, I don't know why, but when that stuff happens, that's that's why we have to fight for Dei because that tells me right there somebody's not getting the memo.
0: what's I guess what's your tactic in getting people who might think differently to engage in those conversations?
1: Uh, a lot of times it's the topic, how we frame the topic. Um sometimes if it's about jobs and employment or education, again, it comes back to how we frame it to the audience we need you to come and talk about this because X, Y, and Z. Hopefully X, Y, and Z is enough to get people at the table. Sometimes it's not, but sometimes we're able to get people coming because like, you don't think it's going to affect you, but I promise you it will affect you.
0: That's great that you're able to, to do it like that. And it sounds like a really important application of all of the skills that you've built up in your career as well. You know, in the Civic Imagination Incubator you know we're looking at like world building and doing, you know these important conversations in our community. Um, is there a specific projects that you're doing? Or are you just continuing this this work, you know, that you're already doing that i I think is very applicable?
1: Actually, it's funny i'm I'm doing something based on religion. Uh, what I want to look at and I kind of touched on it a little earlier is, post-COVID, now that churches are starting to come back, people are starting to come back, how much are people coming back? How much, you know, how much has the landscape changed to where there is people are just social media or virtual church goers? And, you know, are the people going to come back eventually? Are they, are those who are gone just gone? Um, How do uh, pastors and other people you know you know and especially in the you know southern baptist you know this area how do they deal with that how do they um create a new church or create a new system in order to keep people as members of the church and is there is this going to go farther into the to the point where brick and mortar churches are going to to just go away what's that going to look like so um so I th- I I for some reason I just find that highly interesting and maybe it's because of well, like I said I I'll admit for the two years two or so years we were in COVID if I wasn't working in the media uh, realm of it I probably would have stayed home a lot more Sundays myself I might have fallen into that that same bucket of well I'm not going back. But because I was working on the the media, so I had to be there every Sunday and making sure that was going. It intrigues me because you know it used to be that there was only a few people on TV that did that, and you had to be a big time church to have the TV uh, channel or or whatever. Now you can just do it all on social media through Facebook, but it still needs to look good. So that 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 intrigues me, and that's kind of where I've. uh, where, I, where I'm putting this uh, civic imagination. That's where my brain is, is headed towards with that.
0: What are your processes for for kind of researching that?
1: I'm going to interview people. Yeah, no, you're fine. I've already, I've already done some, uh, just looking around to see if there's any studies about it already, to see if there's any scholarly studies about what that looks like, and I've only found one. So that tells me this, this is a pretty open space, good, bad, or the ugly. So my my plan is to interview with some uh, some pastors, to interview with some uh, people who have come back to church uh, after you know post post-pandemic uh, and see what why they came back and talk to some people that don't come back, that haven't come back, and see why is it that they're not coming back? Is it because they're afraid of COVID catching again? Is it because they're just done with, you know, conventional going into church and the politics and dramas? Why is that? And what would bring them back to church? So I think those are the three, the three main uh, people I want to talk to.
0: I guess would your end product be like a written piece or are you looking at creating something visual?
1: Actually, I'm looking to do both. I'm looking to do a written um study that people can look at and use as well as something uh a little short doc that will um uh, that will kind of let something visual people can see. Um I think that will be for those people who are not going to sit down and read a a study, that would be helpful for them to see it, you know, in living color of of a of a person talking about. Here's why I'm not going back, but I but yes, yeah, that's, that's my goal is to do to do a little bit of, to do both and see how see how the reception is.
0: So my last question is, and I ask this of pretty much everybody now, but do you, given where you grew up and where you work, do you consider yourself Appalachian? And if so, what does that identity mean to you?
1: Mm, I never have. Um yeah, I've never really considered myself Appalachian. Um, <clears throat> I guess because I'm close to Appalachia, but I'm not so much in it. So um because I and I guess growing up too, I've always being a, a young black man, Apple Appalachia, the, the the attitude was never never too, not too nice about it. It was like Appalachia is probably a place you don't want to grow up if you're black, um, for, you know, reasons that would, that, that seemed pretty obvious, but I lived over there near Appalachia for a little while when I was in uh, Lexington and I would travel over there for work, uh, to different, different counties. And I was really surprised like, man, this, this place isn't, not bad. The, the people are there are nice and friendly and it it's not what i had had, had um, thought it was when i was growing up what i had heard it was so um and i've got plenty of friends i've got a uh, one of my mentors he's a he's a black man who grew up in appalachia and you know he tells me stories about it and i'm like wow it it sounds like it was a really good place to grow up so um, so yeah so i think uh, overall uh, uh, i from from what I've heard Appalachia has has changed and evolved over the uh, over the years, so I think it makes it a a different beast than what it was when I was when I was growing up and hearing about it.
0: Well, I'm I'm glad that you know your your mentors had a good experience and that it's you know disproven some of those stereotypes. But yeah, thank you for sharing that with me. That's that's interesting. It's, um. I don't know. I'm not from here. So it's it's just really fascinating to hear people in and around the region talk about Appalachia because everybody has such like strong, <laughs> strong definitions of what Appalachia is. And what, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure you know all of this, but oh, yeah, as somebody yeah, from like yeah, yeah. way outside the region, it's just, I don't know, <laughs> I'm just really interested in it all. If you could leave someone listening to this podcast with one piece of advice, what would it be?
1: you can't build community if you're not willing to communicate you have to be willing to communicate with everyone whether you like them whether you agree with them or not if you if you can't communicate with somebody you can't create anything and i think that comes back to the the broadcasting and the journalism and the working all these different avenues nothing that that i've accomplished on my own or within a group or whatever has happened without some sort of communication. Uh, So you can't, you just, you just can't. I, I, I don't see how you can create anything, a community, anything that's worth anything that will stand the test of time if you, if you can't, and you're not willing to communicate. I just don't see how that's possible.
2: Well, thank you all so much for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed learning a little bit more about what different creative people are doing around Appalachia. As I invited y'all last time, I would welcome to hear from any of you what type of work you're doing in this region. If you're a creative or a multimedia maker, share with us what you're working on. Reach out to us on social media. You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Foxfire Org. Again, if you are interested in learning more about the Civic Imagination Project, ways that you can get involved or share with your community, please head over to our website, foxfire.org. We'll have a full list of links and references for you to learn more about each of the folks featured on the podcast, as well as the project itself. And make sure to tune in and in just a couple of weeks for our next interview. Um, we'll be doing this with just a few more fellows before we wrap up this mini series. Thanks, y'all, for listening. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time.
0: If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it.